people need to not just understand who you are, they need to be convinced, right? Like there's so many choices. So how are you going to convince them to, to choose you? And I don't know if there's that, you know, perfectly articulated value proposition that some property management companies have. Welcome closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. Season one, focused on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 or 1,000 doors, this is the show that's going to help you see the big picture and get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Pam Kosanke, the CMO of Renner's Warehouse, America's largest and most awarded residential property management company. Pam has helped propel the company to over 19,000 properties managed nationwide in over 42 markets in 25 states. Not bad. Today, we're going to talk about how Pam has built out the brand and the multi-channel marketing strategy that's helped grow the brand and make it something unique and special and really just sustain very, very aggressive growth, which is harder to do as time goes on. Welcome to the show, Pam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you coming on. I'm super excited to talk to you because you have shouldered a big load with this goal of aggressive growth at scale that is actually sustained. I want to rewind the tape and start back at the beginning. How did you get recruited into Renner's Warehouse? What did what did that look like in, in terms of you actually joining the company? What was your background? Yeah, so I uh, had about 12 years at Leo Burnett Advertising in Chicago, so big advertising firm. I uh, spent my years on bit kind of blue chip bet brands, Fortune 500 companies, uh, Allstate, McDonald's, Hallmark, Toys R Us, Kellogg's, and I actually ended up uh, on as a VP account director uh, working on the McDonald's Chicagoland co-op, over 500 stores. So got pretty in the weeds with pricing models and um, local and national advertising strategies. So that's that's kind of my background. I ended up leaving Leo Burnett uh, to start a marketing consulting kind of group. I just really got a little bit bored of the of the big corporate life, so I wanted to try something new. And I met Brenton Hayden, who was the founder of Renner's Warehouse at the time, did some work for him, and um, just kind of went my, my own kind of merry way. And then a couple years later, just kept hearing back from him, hey, come on full time. So I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I, I got here. I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And you know, I'll kind of test it out and, you know, almost do it as a, as a part-time type deal and really haven't stopped since. <laughs> so kind of the story goes and I, I, uh, fell in love with the company and the brand and the mission. And there was just so much work and excitement in the industry that, um, you know, I'm constantly challenged. So that's, what's kept me around and, and, uh, have loved our growth. So what was the vision that you bought into early on? Did you understand that you were going to be building a truly consumer brand in a space that where that really hadn't happened before? Yeah, you know, uh, we've always had some big goals, big sites, big vision around this brand. 
I remember at one point walking in and saying, we want to be, um, you know, the, the number one brand in this space, like Kleenexes to tissue, right? Like, you know, really wanted to shoot for the stars. It, it was amazing because in some cases, people hadn't even heard of property management. Um, some markets that we were in were, what's that? Why can't I just Craigslist it? Like, what, what is property management, right? So it wasn't just about renter's warehouse. It was about helping to educate people in the actual space. And as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, the world of property management has, has dramatically evolved. Um, and, the, and the intelligence around it and the wherewithal of investors coming into the space and kind of making it a true asset class, it's been an exceptional growth story for the entire industry. Absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to hone in on here is that when we talk about building a consumer brand, I want to define that and flesh that out beyond just buzzwords. Who wouldn't love to have a consumer brand? Can you just talk me through how you feel Renner's Warehouse has demonstrated proof of concept? And let's say specifically in the Minneapolis market where the concentration is so high, I think it's it's pretty obvious you guys have crossed that threshold. What, what are the tangibles of what it looks like to say that we're actually a household name? Well, you know, it's tangibles. I guess we can certainly prove it within our gross, our, our numbers, right? When I first started, we were two markets and uh, around, I think around 2,000 properties. And, you know, it, it was clear that uh, Minneapolis, anywhere you go, you, you heard of Renner's Warehouse. People under, heard the brand on the radio specifically, uh, we are huge proponents of radio as a as a medium and as a channel, and we've created a really impressive relationship with a local agency here that can kind of put the the numbers and the negotiations together for us in a, for a winning combo. And the DJ endorsements that we uh, worked to hone and really, I think, be innovative in that space through endorsements. Uh, people felt like it was a brand for them because their their DJs were almost speaking directly to them about our brand. And it continues today. Uh, I, it's funny. Um, anywhere I go, where do you work? What do you do? And I say Renter's Warehouse here. Oh, everyone's heard about that brand. Oh, wow, Renter's Warehouse, that's huge. You know, I hear you guys all the time. So, you know, there's there's a lot of not awareness of our brand, and we've taken a very different approach to um, marketing, right? We're, we're not the silent digital players, um, you know, in the background, kind of waiting for demand to be you know, waiting to, to draw people in. We're very much creating the demand in traditional mediums and, and getting people to understand that this is an opportunity for them outside of simply just selling their house, right? Like there is an alternative option. And frankly, there's an ability to invest in real estate um, as an everyday homeowner and investor. And I think we've we've spoken to people in such a variety of states of affairs. If you can imagine when I first started, it was about, it was the great recession and it was about uh, helping people. It was helping people get through um, their real estate crisis. And if they couldn't sell their home or, or would lose too much, if they did, we provided an alternative and, and actually financially rewarding and viable option for them. So, you know, in, in some cases we were almost couch therapists, if you will, taking phone calls from people who are fairly desperate, or they're going through major milestone events, whether it's marriage or divorce, um, or a death in the family. And so we've had to work through some of those very personal situations. And the, this is the most expensive investment people have made in their lives. And so it takes a very personal touch. And so I think through those 
through the ongoing and consistent marketing offline, online, we've created a presence in this marketplace and across the country now that people can relate to. Love it. I agree. I think that empathy, the E word is key here. And you guys really have focused and doubled down on emotional hot button issues and had a really clear focus from day one. One of the areas of focus, not in terms of messaging, but in terms of medium is radio. I got to ask, whose idea was that out of the (laughs) gate to invest in radio? You know, uh, it was a combination of, uh, I'll tell you, I, I inherited it a bit from Brenton Hayden and uh, a local media um, agency in Minneapolis called Media Bridge Advertising, Tracy Call specifically a founder. And, you know, back when Runner's Warehouse was just a small group of people, Brenton reached out to uh, Media Bridge because he heard a Glenn Beck endorsement for another brand. It's like, couldn't figure out how this brand was able to get this type of endorsement. And he struck up a relationship with Tracy. And I think we started with $3,000 a month to try to figure out, okay, if you, you know, if you could just put a one chip on a pony and you, you, and you wrote it, what would, who would it be? And what would it, what would it say? And they doubled down and the phone started ringing off the hook. It dramatically changed the lead volume because it was creating buzz and awareness and demand. And suddenly it had a whole other level of credibility behind it. And certainly empathy, that's a great, great word. There was a lot of, you know, we can help you through this situation. And that strategy just blossomed and grew. And, you know, you mined one well of a station and a DJ and you worked to the next one. And I think part of it is making sure you're getting, you know, radio is a complicated, it can be a complicated medium in the sense that um, you've got to get the numbers right. And a lot of people walk away from radio, but they didn't buy it right. They didn't buy it with the right strategy and they certainly didn't buy it with the right type level of negotiation. Uh, it's been very, very critical for us to get the right type of uh, uh, rates. And certainly Media Bridge Advertising has worked to do that for us. But I think that's just continued to be a bread and butter piece that we've made, created as a platform of our marketing strategy and DJ endorsement specifically. We sit down with all of them. Uh, we go through our business model. In fact, many of them are clients and we make sure that they believe in what we're doing. And when they believe, they very, very much comes through on the radio, and there's a lot of news talk and sports talks, you know, channels that people absolutely embrace, and they trust these DJs to tell them the truth. And you know, that's that's the case. And we only work with people who want to work with us. Talk to me about the language and the metrics of of radio. When you talk about success and kind of slicing and dicing things, what are some of the numbers or metrics that get thrown around to set up a campaign for success, essentially? Right. So. You know, f- we've found that frequency absolutely matters here in this space. So, you know, depending on, you know, sometimes we'll buy certain days of the week, we'll buy certain weekends, um, you know, we're testing a variety of strategies there, but we'll, we'll run 40 to 50 ads a week. Uh, we'll buy vertically, majority in prime day parts. We'll, you know, plot the ads around our endorsements. Um, you know, we'll go very deep into specific segments of time. And Monday through Wednesdays have been kind of our heaviest time periods. Um, we avoid some of the retail end of week prices. And, you know, it's a cost per thousands game sometimes. I mean, you can't always perfectly measure that, but we have an aggressive rate on cost per thousand in terms of impressions. 
we go through each one of these stations and when we turn it on, we measure leads from that station. We do it through our free home rental price analysis. And a lot of times it's sourced by the user who's going online to fill that out. I mean, it's our call to action. You know, when they call in, we our inside sales team absolutely make sure that they mark down, you know, where they heard from us. So we have directional data. By no means is it pure. As you can imagine, lead sourcing is always a frustrating component of any marketing person's job because there are you know, there's, there's sometimes it's simply a matter of what the person last remembers, or it's a popularity game in terms of radio stations. But, you know, we, we tease that out. And when we see good cost per lead rates, uh, we continue and it's about volume. It's about rate. And you don't want to just spend more to get more, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, price per lead, you've got to really be careful where there's a tipping point of volume coming out of a station and cost per sale on the other side is equally as important. And, you know, I always say don't get fooled by uh, efficiency when you're getting, you know, kind of screwed on effectiveness, right? So be careful that you might say, wow, this is a really good cost per lead rate for us, but we're not converting them. Why aren't we converting them? Is it a quality issue? Is it a sales team issue? Is it a messaging problem? Uh, are we bringing in the wrong people or just kind of tire kickers at the time and, you know, maybe they're not ready? Uh, so we very much like a cost for sale and I'll, I'll pay more for a great quality lead than I know I can I can close and, you know, and keep down that cost per sale. Cause ultimately that's the, 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 you know, the metric that matters. Absolutely. You're preaching to the choir. We see this all the time with companies that hire non-integrated lead gen vendors where they're doing pay-per-click, whatever it may be. And they're getting reports about eyeballs, clicks, click-through rates, everything other than cost per conversion, which is the number that actually matters. Follow-up question on radio, AM, FM, have you found both to work? We have, I think, you know, it really is market dependent. And so I think that's actually been, you know, beware of the secret sauce, right? It's at some point, it's, this isn't some sort of set it, forget it kind of piece. We have to identify the right demographics across each market. Uh, we have to identify the stations that match our consumer profile the best. And sometimes it's sports talk and sometimes it's news talk. And sometimes there is an AM show that kind of works as a, it's a, it's a low volume uh, audience, but they're really high converting or high loyalists, right? So you have to understand kind of what that magic formula kind of is, if you will, but there isn't one that's universal, right? There's magic formulas that happen to work with a combination of messaging and DJ and the station per market. And in some cases per seasonality, you know, it's relative to seasonality. We've seen even in certain markets where sports talk is dominant and sometimes it's complete failure. You know, we really have to understand, we have to test, you have to test and tinker and all those things. And once we get some of those basics where the, you know, the audience is pretty concentrated, but we understand, you know, it's the right type of price tag and entry point for us, we'll expand into a contemporary hits type station format with much more, you know, you know, uh, ears and, and listenership and it's a bigger audience to play in. It can be more expensive. So we have to be careful there. But, you know, we're about scale. We want to grow as fast as possible. And listen, you know, who's not a potential homeowner or investor? It's hard to figure out who that perfect person is, but everyone is an option. Absolutely. Have you guys dabbled with any original programming? In a re yes, we have. We've done some of our own real estate shows. Um, we've had, you know, sometimes cases it requires some ad sales, as you know. And so we have to get the right 
you have to get the right person, the right personality. You have to be a content marketing type of expert who really understands the space and is extremely versed in it. And you're willing to put together the work to make those shows happen. We do have um, some, you know, an, almost a, an interview strategy format, which we will leverage two-minute formats as well across the country where uh, we'll have some of our experts in each department or Kevin Ortner specifically, our CEO, you know, work with a DJ and answer some questions in a long-form format. Uh, but yeah, we've done some shows and we've had some some success on a local market level with that. But, you know, there's, hey, there's always really cool tactics and opportunities ahead of us. So that's a great idea. I think at some point we could have a, a really nice show if we, we had the resources to do it. So one thing that I feel like we almost kind of glossed over is the fact that you mentioned that the free rental price analysis is the sell. It's the call to action with the radio ads. I've loved the way that you guys have positioned that simple, old, crusty <laughs> offer. There's nothing new about yeah. the free rental price analysis, the CMA. There's a CMA and then there's a CMA, right? The way that you package the offer can be so profoundly different. And I'd love to go on about it, but there's not a whole lot to go on about, right? It's just in the fact that you guys actually show, you demonstrate, you show rather than tell, you give a pre-visual of the report, et cetera. One question I had for you is, do you guys gate that offer? Meaning when somebody fills out that contact form, do you send out the free rental price analysis immediately or do you gate that behind a salesperson interaction? That's a really good question. And it's been one of those things that we uh, challenge ourselves on all the time, especially in marketing and sales that, you know, we've gated it. At first, it was because we, you know, we really wanted to get in front of the consumer. We wanted to make sure that we could uh, get the contact information uh, and send an advisor to the home to make sure that we, you know, had that in-person conversation um, to aid in conversion. But I, I think in, you know, in today's world, and, and so much has changed, there's an instant gratification opportunity here, especially with absentee landlords, out-of-town investors, where you'd love to be able to do it over the phone. And there's a whole other level of legal parameters around giving that, that price analysis. So we've steered clear of it at one point from a strategic point of view, and now I think more from a legal point of view, we're, we're not sure how to kind of tread through that all the time, but sometimes we're able to do it, sometimes we don't. Um, I would like to more and more, but I think that gate has frankly worked really, really well for us. And it allows us to have that additional level of in-person conversation, as you know. I, I completely agree. I think it makes sense. I th my belief is that it is sufficiently down funnel that it merits a sales interaction, whereas maybe a, an ebook or something along those lines might not. What it relates to, though, is multi-channel. Can you just explain to me what is multi-channel marketing? Why is it hard, and why is it something you guys have invested in? Yeah, I think it is exactly what it says it is. It's uh, being able to put together campaigns with a, a multiple touch points, and you know, in the past, it was it was in multiple roles of those touch points, right? So it becomes kind of a role of media strategy that you have to work through in addition to your brand campaign and certainly your budgets and resources available to do those effectively. But it's, you know, in the uh, quote old days, right? It was turn on the TV, call the salesperson. Uh, there wasn't this automatic and very inextricably linked relationship back to digital that there is today. And even the word digital and social is very, uh, I mean, it's like this, it's like the, the multiple channels w under the sea, I call it. You know, it's like the amount of channels around digital and social are almost endless. And so we have to be able to understand that it, there, there is the 
kind of typical, I think, marketing funnel that is going to play out, but there's going to be different channels that, that kind of insert themselves within that funnel. So you're driving awareness and demand, and then you're capturing and converting that through additional channels when people are able to research in, uh, you know, through in the online channels and then the social channels. There's reputation management factors as a channel. There's a, you know, there's certainly the LinkedIn's and the Facebook's and the Instagram and Pinterest, all of the social pieces. There is content marketing that becomes almost its own channel where they're searching on the industry itself and under, trying to understand who's, you know, telling the best secrets, notice the space more and demonstrating competency in those spaces. And then, um, you know, there's actually just capturing, frankly, the the search, as you can imagine. I mean, the, the, the you know, basic pay-per-click in that space. And then there's this whole world of retargeting and remarketing where, you know, you, you capture data and you want to send follow-up information and how that gets, you know, there's lots of different channels to do that. Email, social, uh, display uh, units within uh, YouTube videos. Uh, there's an endless variety of ways to continue to have conversations with uh, consumers after you've created that demand. And so that's that's kind of, um, you know, I guess a long answer on multi-channel marketing, but it, it kind of helps you understand this isn't necessarily a new sales process, but it's just a whole new way of, of interacting with consumers across a whole other world of channels. And so it is important to play in those spaces. We've very much uh, doubled down in digital and social marketing to help make our traditional advertising that much more effective. We've had to keep up with the way people are uh, researching the industry, researching brands, um, taking into account consumer reviews. Uh, and and really looking for different forms of content, whether that's uh, certainly just copy or video. And so that's that's the exciting part of it. I think the complexity and the the difficulty is in proving out the ROI and making sure that you're not, um, you know, just uh, almost testing way too many things at once. Attribution, absolutely. That's what I, next thing I was going to ask you about. So hearing that, it sounds a little overwhelming. In in Practicality for most companies, tracking all of that would be really challenging. Did you guys start off with a first touch or a last touch attribution model? And how has your attribution progressed over time to account for multi-channel? Yeah, it's uh, it was very rudimentary to start. It was truly just radio. You know, there was a some pay-per-click that uh, we didn't quite understand how it all worked. I mean, it was baby stages of getting into the yes, the online offline world, and that was it. That was kind of the limit. And since then, you know, it's even a matter of testing all the various strategies within pay-per-click and display and retargeting and landing pages and contact and, you know, custom numbers and things. So we've had to uh, learn a lot. Uh, in fact, we had to reinvent our entire website to handle uh, or to take advantage of the opportunities in organic, uh, you know, clicks, right, as well as the paid clicks. So that's been... Uh, you know, there was a lot of journeying through those processes. And then once we started to get more sophisticated with platforms uh, and literally a website that could handle, and we're still working on that, but national and local traffic and routing and optimization, then, you know, we were able to get more creative in the way we apply to some of our digital marketing to the to the system. Uh, and then the, some of the paid social, I think we've kind of we don't have our heads perfectly wrapped around all the different metrics. I mean, we're certainly measuring a lot of things. I think the beauty is in putting it together and getting that uh, last click, you know, model together. 
we've we've been able to put some of the pieces together, but I don't think we have a perfect attribution model that I can say, you know, has you know, perfectly steering us. This is why they pay marketing people to put their marketing hat on and make decisions, right? At some point, it's about also the the, the creative idea and the message uh, driving the effectiveness as much as it is all the channels, right? So it's just as important as what you're saying than where you as as much as it is as where you are. Uh, so uh, you know, now I think we we're using a variety of pieces, including, but it all comes down to cost per lead and cost per sale, right? So it all comes down to that. And now we look at everything all in and not just channel specific in some cases, because I think it's really hard to tease out the interactivity of all this. Pam, what competent internal competencies did you develop and build out within your marketing team over time? Where did you feel like it was most important to prioritize first in terms of that that internal skill set? Well, we started with uh, hiring a, a digital marketing person pretty immediately. That was my first hire. And I've only built out the, the digital marketing and team. Um, I've taken on the brand strategy and communication strategy piece um, and the integrations piece, but the the technology and the requirements in the digital space have been quite you know exhaustive, right? So that's kind of how we started. Now I would say it's been a bit of an accordion process where we had outsourced some things, then we decided to in-house somebody to run point, right? We could inside we could in-house a bit of the a bit of the workload and some of the 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 uh, the pieces, and then we would outsource again and say, oh well, you know, we've we've reached our limit. We need to find some additional specialists in the space and different platforms to try to give us, uh, the, you know, the right type of results. And then we decided, well, you know, now it's time to in-house somebody. We can save on some of those fees, right, and through some of the paid in the paid space. Um, but it's it goes back and forth. I think as you build a team, it is important to re- recognize when you're going to save some money bringing in some people in house versus outsourcing some of the, the, the workload. Um, and we've just, uh, needed to adjust as we go. Um, certainly there's, there's tipping points, but I would say you've got, like, it's important for us to have agency support for, uh, the innovation factor. You know, we, we, you know, we don't know everything and we can't expect our people to be in the 30,000 foot view as well as in 10,000 foot view, as you can imagine. If you're competent enough to be able to be a discriminating consumer uh, and then be very selective about the key areas of where you're choosing to outsource as opposed to orienting towards, I'm, I'm basically saying I have no idea how, to, how to, to judge the quality of the good or service. That's really where, where you're vulnerable. Yeah, you can't you, wash your hands of it, right? You can't just throw up your hands and say, here's an agency, go to all of this. We run a hub and spoke model. We're always kind of doing that. Just the hub grows and shrinks as we need it to. Uh, and so do the so do the spokes, right? Like we we can rotate around partners as we either outgrow them, or maybe we're dissatisfied, or maybe you know they almost become an extension of our in-house team. Absolutely. Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur. If you're interested in leveling up your sales marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs and stay on the bleeding edge of the industry, you need to be at the PM Growth Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to www.pmgrowsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. See you there. 
So let's talk about the book that you guys have recently put out, authored by Kevin Ortner. I'm sure there was a lot of people that contributed to that. This is a this is a level up, even for you guys. This is a step up in terms of the commitment to writing a book. Right at some point, everybody's got to do it. You guys, the kind of the go big moment. Talk me through how you guys thought about the ROI on that uh, early on, and then what it was like to actually bring that to market. Uh, yeah. Wow. What a process. I mean, talk about a steep learning curve. It's, uh, you know, wanting to write a book and then actually going through the exercise of doing it was, it was an impressive feat. We're extremely excited about it and proud of the, I think the the result. We didn't treat it as a, a book. You know, everyone's got a book to your point. We wanted to basically create uh, one of the most important evergreen content marketing pieces that we could imagine. You know, in the end of the day, it's a giant content marketing piece. And so that's, that's how we, that's how we treated it. Right. And we can, we can dissect all the chapters we can, you know, and, and parse them out in different ways. We can create white papers and infographics. We can, you know, teach our sales team. It becomes a training tool inside. We've, we've had countless people that are dabbling in the space read the book and be excited to buy additional properties and certainly use us as the property manager. So from that standpoint, it, it brings credibility, it's public relations, it's content marketing fodder, it's a training mechanism. I think the level of investment into it is it's already paid its dividends. It's media pitching material. Our, you know, people in, in our, our employees love it. They're proud of it. And we invented the term and, the, and trademarked the term rent estate to help define, redefine the industry to cl- and, and frankly claim the number one position within it, right? So it was a brand strategy component to this. And, and we've changed even the name of all of our agents to rent-estate advisors, right? We're trying to let people under, you know, know that we're no longer just a transactional leasing and property management company. We actually have, we're advising you through this very critical landscape and you know there's major financial returns and you know considerations that uh that that we can help you work through and it's important so i think it's kind of it's real estate for the everyday you know man and woman it's it's helping to disarm the intimidation factor within the space Uh, it just works on a variety of levels so it took us over a year to to get it done correctly we um we had uh production help copywriting support we had uh, book production specialists will help us, you know, put it together. And, um, and then we've just been using, we created an entire website, renestaterevolution.com to support all of the materials. We wanted it to be, uh, you know, a very interactive type of uh, concept where people could get additional resources. So it's got a lot of legs and I think we'll continue to, to, to use it for years. What I love is the dichotomy of both vision and incrementalism. The vision is the long-term, where we're going to take this consumer brand, coining, rent estate, et cetera. The incrementalism is the fact that you did start with that key core concept of rent estate, trademarked it, got a lot of mileage out of that long before you actually took the gigantic step of creating the book. And I think that's where the magic exists, is living on both sides of the spectrum and kind of moving through that as a journey. Yeah, I appreciate that. That is very much the way we uh, approached it. We knew we were on to a big idea, you know, and I think, you know, going back to kind of my brand days at Leo Burnett, there was, 
you know, everyone wants to, to put together their why. And uh, this, this became a very clear way of articulating that why and getting the company to truly kind of drink the Kool-Aid ourselves, rally around it and embrace it in a way that now it's, it's a part of our everyday elevator pitch. It's a part of why you come to work. Uh, you know, we want to help people discover the power of single family rental investments that we very much lovingly call rent estate because the magic is in uh, outsourcing all of the headaches and the work because today, you know, today's tools uh, allow you to be able to do that so that you can, you know, enjoy your time doing anything else but property management. Uh, and in the fun is in getting more of these, you know, these properties to then, um, you know, help you manage your wealth. Let's transition to, for a moment to talk about what hasn't worked. Pam, give me a, give me the straight talk here. What have you tried that was that was a, a complete and utter failure? Surely you've had you got one of one or two of those in your time with Runners Warehouse. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're not failing, then you're not trying to be innovative. I mean, we like mistakes. Mistakes and failing happen all the time, right? We run some campaigns where I say, "Wow, that just totally," you know that pooped the bed. I mean, we didn't get the type of, uh, you know, we got a lot of impressions. We didn't get a lot of clicks. Like, you know, what really happened there? We're not sure. We've done that with social. I don't think we've had a perfect, you know, we haven't had some of the, there's so many components to test. I think that's kind of the big watch out is that, is it, is it the format? Is it the message? Is it the target audience? Is it how much, you know, you put into the ad campaign? Uh, what were you running around it, right? Did it meet, did it actually match the way you were talking about in radio? So you have to make sure things are kind of working together. I think we hit, we had hits and miss with direct mail. We, um, you know, part of the, the beauty of that is, you know, you can do 26 variable testing in there. You can say, okay, is it a letter format? Is it a postcard? Is it a big high impact piece? Where am I buying the data? Is the data right? You know, is it, can I take, can I get the email addresses to then run some, targeted social campaigns so that when people get the direct mail, they see an email and they see some Facebook ads, you know, all of those kind of things, right? I think the failure comes with, you know, frankly, not trying some of these things and understanding your way through it. You know, it's, you have to be able to, to embrace um, aspects of it. Um, We, we tested TV a bit, but it's an expensive proposition to fail at. So, you know, if it's not working dramatically, you got to kind of abort mission. But I would say that that's actually like, it's not that I don't believe in TV. It's a matter of I don't have the resources to make it. I think I didn't have the resources to stay in the game long enough to understand what we how we could make that work harder for us and how it works in conjunction with radio. You think about it, you you need a visual piece as well as the audio piece, right? We are very much an audio brand and we've started to figure out kind of our visual components so I don't know if there's been one, I mean, there's, there's radio stations that don't work. I mean, we fail at that all the time. We might start some radio and realize, ah, we didn't quite nail that one. Either it's the, it's the station itself. Maybe it's a DJ. Maybe we didn't get the, maybe we didn't get the ads right. So we're constantly working through, it comes back to cost per lead, cost per sale. You know, what, and what are some of the levers that we can pull to, to help fix that, you know, fix the situation. And if we can't within a couple of months, well, we do have to move on. So I, I think that in every channel, we've kind of not been perfect. We have to figure that piece out. You know, op, from an opportunity standpoint, I think we have, we have, we have a lot more room to, to grow as a brand uh, from a messaging and communication strategy. So we're, 
actively exploring that and working to figure out what is the kind of 2.0, 3.0 version of ourselves that will provide some new news and make everything hang together even tighter. Do you guys at this point actually advertise truly national campaigns or is everything that you're doing more or less on a market by market basis, even if those campaigns look similar, but, but restricted to specific markets? Mostly local. Uh, we do do some national SEM in some cases for certain types of keyword strategies or, you know, that, that does happen. Um, but we've stuck, we've done, we've done some testing with XM radio you know, we almost abort, we aborted not really because it wasn't perfectly working. We just, we wanted to understand from a local level how it was kind of paying back. I think there were other opportunities, uh, but we very much are hyper local in every possible way. Uh, that's just been something from a real estate, you know, game, as you can imagine, people trust uh, local knowledge of their, uh, of their area and of marketplace values. What do you see staying the same and what do you see changing as you continue to scale? The company is going to presumably try and maintain the same growth rate, maybe make a, the growth rate improve, but uh, the burden is going to get bigger as the numbers get larger. Do you see the strategy that you have right now meeting the, the growth needs that you guys will have? Or do you think that there are going to be some significant structural pieces that will need to, to change to hit those growth goals over the next two to three years? I think it's the latter, you know, so we're, we have uh, dramatically evolved our, our marketing and our growth model um, to accommodate this need for scale. I mean, we want to be a property manager that has over 200,000 properties, you know, managed, right? Like those from kind of big lofty goals. Uh, we are actively working on a- acquisitions and takeovers to help grow that, that landscape. And I have to look at the cost per acquisition versus kind of organic marketing growth uh, numbers. So that's always that kind of, hey, is it easier for me to go and buy a door or is it easier for me to organically grow? And I think, you know, we've, we're very much committed to both paths because we believe in that retail side of the business and the power of helping everyday homeowners as much as we're helping the, the investors, right? So I think fundamentally, I've got to always, I've got, I'm going to have to understand how the other side of the coin plays into my to my strategy, um, number one, I think there are opportunities for us to explore national marketing as our footprint grows. Um, and those will be regional buys. Those will be national buys. We're going to have to invest more in uh, the digital marketing side of the space where we have, you know, we're, we're spooling up sales cloud and marketing cloud and you know, all the Salesforce systems and I think getting some of that automated marketing pieces um, kind of firing on all the right cylinders are going to take some additional layers of investments from a marketing standpoint. Um, I think the brand side of things, you know, making sure that we're investing in the brand in a bigger way, creating more ownable um, pieces like, like you had mentioned, you know, having your own show, putting together, um, you know, new workshops and events that we can start to own and, and make sure that we're really uh, in deep with the local community and having these kind of in-depth conversations will be key. Uh, so yeah, everything has to evolve. And that's what's so fun about it is that we, uh, we fundamentally believe in marketing and investing in marketing. And um, that's very much part of our culture and our DNA. And it will, uh, will, it'll always require a bit more. I love it. So no resting on your laurels, constantly changing 
the model, which frankly is the necessity to be able to maintain this fast growth. I want to transition to the rapid fire section of the interview. I've got some quick questions I want to go through and just get some guttural answers from you, Pam. The first is, what's the number one skill set to being a successful CMO? Number one skill set would be uh, the ability to value interdependencies within the organization. Marketing is everything. And dig deep into every single aspect of the organization where marketing applies. Mm, I like it. Okay. I feel you. Next question. Who do you learn from? I love talking to people about their businesses. I learn from anybody who wants to talk to me about um, their job, <laughs> their industry. Uh, there's so many different ways we can learn about um, best practices in the spaces um, based upon cross-industry uh, marketing. And so I talk to people all the time in different business groups, networking groups, uh, wherever I am, I'm trying to understand what they're doing well and what applies to our space uh, and learning from other brands. That's, that's, that's really how I learn the most. What books have impacted you the most? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm not very much of a um, book junkie. I read so much online and in magazines and kind of, I'm kind of a, I almost have like a Twitter attention span when it comes to reading. And so uh, anything within the entrepreneur space um, or within the, the leadership space, I am totally riveted by. So I, I just read about people and stories and uh, things that would have some sort of parallel impact to the way I think about um, our business. So <laughs> I wish I could tell you a, a great, awesome book. I think uh, my last one was around, um, was it my last book I read was about, um, called Own It uh, by, by Sally Krawcheck. So it was about financial feminism. So, you know, but actually very inspirational, applicable uh, concepts to uh, talking to women about the opportunities within Run Estate. Any blogs you would throw out there as uh, or publications that you read? It ranges from like a Seth Godin to anything within real estate. We constantly are are searching for people who are writing interesting things within the real estate space. So, you know, bigger pockets and some of the work you're doing. Um, we've, we've very much are kind of always mining that space. So I read about um, single family rental um, investments uh, and thought leadership there all the time. I love it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So it's not all just the generic um, entrepreneurship kind of stuff. You're actually, you're digging deep within the context. No, we have to. I'll tell you, number one thing is you have to be a thought leader in the space. If I don't understand the space inside and out, how can I possibly talk about it? You know, and so, you know, that's why, you know, I'm personally investing in real estate. I'm, I rent estate. <laughs> I'm um, working with people who um, would know how to help me find and, and, and source, uh, you know, financing and properties to do that. Right. So I, I, I go to every single trade show, Merit Catalyst, we go to, um, you know, IMN, uh, we go to a lot of the real estate spaces and I, I go there not to work a booth, but to listen to every single presentation. It's a, it's critical for us to be thought leaders in this space, um, from an inside out, from a marketing team, uh, as well as our sales team and anything my agents know, um, man, I, I better catch up. And they always know a little bit more than me, but I, 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 need, to know, I need to know that stuff. Love it. Got to practice what you preach. Couldn't agree more. Here's a follow-up question that I really 
enjoy asking every guest that comes on the show. And I'm curious to hear your answer. When it comes to paid and organic, your, your, your primary marketing channels, how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? I mean, we're paying up to $2,000 for our contracts um, in some cases. I like to drive acquisition costs below 1000 you know, there's lifetime value numbers that are all over the all over the the map. It depends on even the market. We well, we try to keep it below two thousand for sure. So when you when you quote me those numbers, we're talking about SEO, pay per click, radio, not buying a portfolio, correct? Correct. But but in some cases, it's the same kind of dollars, right? So, you know, we try to stay within the right type with within a similar framework where. You know, I'm constantly battling, or not battling, but I'm partnering with my portfolio services group and our acquisitions team and Noel Christopher, who you've had on your show, to make sure that um, we're spending money as wisely as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, they're definitely organic versus management company acquisition costs. But there's, there's some different structures there, but, you know, it's all the same money. Money's money. We want to make sure that we're being true to our lifetime value of our customers. Related question, early on before you guys had meaningful data when you're two, three years old, what placeholder number did you use as a default assumption about customer lifetime duration? Assumptions. I mean, you know, three to five years, we were hoping, you know, I think it's been, it's longer. In some cases, we've literally had, we still have customers who started with Runners Warehouse when Runners Warehouse started, you know, they're working on seven, eight years. Oh, we just turned 10. So in some, it's, you know, I think we do still have eight, nine-year-old clients. We had such a great wealth of information in Minneapolis, but every single local market, you know, we're learning more and more about what's making those consumers stay around and certainly how the local real estate marketplaces are affecting their ability to, um, their desire to rent versus sell. Last question of the day. What's the number one thing you see property management entrepreneurs doing wrong when it comes to marketing? And put that on the flip side, what's the low-hanging opportunity for property management businesses? What are they doing wrong? Um, I think some cases not having a point of view. You know, there's, um, you know, what really is the compelling difference that, that, you're, that you're talking about um, in kind of getting that that bottled up elevator pitch uh, down, down right uh, and, and digestible and really framing it versus competition. Um, and I think that that is about um, the thought leadership piece, right? So sometimes there's not a clear sense that they are beyond a transactional company, you know, like something that just kind of helps you lease and manage properties versus people who are going to help you understand um, the wealth creation potential of rent estate uh, or the opportunities within the real estate investing space. And I think that's what people need to not just understand who you are. They need to be convinced, right? Like there's so many choices. So how are you going to convince them to, to choose you? And I don't know if there's that, you know, perfectly articulated value proposition that um, some property management companies have. Hang on those words. That advice was pure gold. We can go into the tactics. 
We can talk about where you can get more leads. We can talk about the new strategy that's going to create uh, some additional lead stream for you. But let's go, let's go upstream. Let's always point to the principal and she just nailed it. Identify the customer, identify the needs, have clarity in your messaging, have a point of view and do not fall into what I like to call we're number one syndrome. Incredibly prescient advice. Pam, I appreciate you coming on the show today. If folks want to find out more about what Renner's Warehouse is up to, what's the best place for them to go to? Hey, Renner'sWarehouse.com or RenEstateRevolution.com or uh, tons of information. You can check out our blog. You can read our uh, downloadable guides. Um, and you can always send an email to Pam at Renner'sWarehouse.com. Um, I love, we love sharing uh, free advice. Thanks again for coming on, Pam. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate you having me.